Hello and welcome to another edition of Spy Hards Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, sipping from a microphone martini. I'll have a touch of sherry myself. It's delectably audible. Mm-mm. Delectably? That's right. Well, I, I won't, I'll trust you on that one. But, uh, Cam, we do have a special guest joining us this week, riding in on a tank, smashing through a wall. We have TV and film historian and author of the new book, Guns, Girls and Gadgets, 60 Spy Films Uncovered. It's Michael Richardson. Hello, Mike. Hi, hello there. Pleasure to have you on the show. I, I actually got this book a few months back, and we've been talking for a while to get you for the perfect movie. We actually had you scheduled for something else originally, but uh, we ended up with the film we're talking about this week. But I think before we get to that, we want to get to know you a little better. So my first question to you is, why spy films? What, what's, what's brought your interest into spy films? Uh, I, just, I just got into spy movies at an early age, and... I wanted to find a book to read which would expand my knowledge on all these spy movies. And nobody sort of ever wrote one, so I thought, I'll write it myself. And that's how it came about. Do you remember what the first spy movie you saw was that really grabbed you? Were you a fan of spy fiction as well? Um, yeah, I, I think I sort of got into maybe spy TV and sort of spy films with the Man From U.N.C.L.E. films. Uh, in the UK, the Man From U.N.C.L.E. was shown on a Thursday night after Top of the Pop, so it got a bit of a lead in, uh, and it became quite a big cult. And I preferred it. It was an American show, and I preferred it to the British shows at the time because it was a bit more action-packed, a bit of humour. Yeah, it, a bit of mystery. It was... I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I started then. I started reading the Ian Fleming, James Bond novels. Got through all those. Read some of Peter Donald's Modesty Blaze and maybe one or two others. And then we sort of got the Bond films. Sort of. I think it was seventy-five. Doctor No was the first Eon Bond to be shown on British TV on ITV. And sort of from that then on, I sort of went to the cinema. And it was sort of Diamonds Are Forever and Live and Let Die, uh, yeah, Sean and Roger. So, yeah, that, that's how I got into it. And then from, from on there, I sort of watching, uh, I think Mission Impossible was a, a show I got into and really liked. And I didn't get into the British shows really until sort of mid-late 70s. Uh, we got a repeat run on my region of the Avengers, the Diana Rigg colour ones. And I sort of liked those. There was a bit of sci-fi, a bit, bit more. Um, how can I say? A bit more progressed on from your standard spy uh, stories. So I got into that. And um, what is it about the '60s spy genre? You know, you wrote the book on the '60s. What is it about the '60s versus? You know, you're talking about how you were really into this a lot of stuff in the '70s. But what is it about yeah, that decade yeah. that makes it so special? The 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 '60s. With the Bond influence, there was just an explosion of uh, spy movies. Nearly every film company wanted to make a spy film and jump on the bandwagon. Uh, and there was just a huge amount of spy movies. So 
it was great, really. If you were into them like I was, it, it's just a great time. And then in the 70s, as you say, a lot of these films from the 60s were reshown on TV. Uh, you know, I used to watch the, young, the Man From U.N.C.L.E. films, the Matt Elms, things like that, quite regularly, although they're not shown as much now uh, on UK TV, apart from the James Bonds. No, you definitely don't see them much anymore on, on British television. It's just the, no, odd, uh, the no. odd bank holiday James Bond now is yeah. what are left with. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, before maybe we talk about the book a little more and then get into the film we're talking about this week, what's a 60s spy film you always go back to? What's one you love personally? I, I like, um, well, yeah, I like Billion Dollar Brain. Um it's 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 a great location, I think, to take Harry Palmer to Finland. Although it is adapted from the book, uh, and there's there's a, a bit of mystery, a bit of action, a bit of dry humour from Michael Caine. Um, yeah, and it, it, I think it just keeps keeps going really. And and also, I think I, I thought it was cutting edge because it, the the storyline it wasn't a typical spy story where the Russians or the Soviets we're going to start World War Three. It could come from the extremist people in the West, uh, and I thought that well, that's a bit of a novel idea, uh, and yeah, I quite like that. Yeah, I mean, in that sort of sense, it's the sort of spy story they're telling now. You just look at something like Spectre, where it was all us that was the bad guys in the end, and that, actually, that's happened quite a few times recently. So yeah, I suppose it's quite progressive, and I really enjoyed Billion Dollar Brain. We of course had Shane Whaley from Spybrary on the episode to to uh, decode that one. But, okay, so that's what you're going back to. Now, have you caught the trailer for the new Ipcris File TV show on ITV? I haven't, no. Oh, Not yet. Okay. I've heard about I'll send you a link to it afterwards. I'll be interested to know what you think oh, of it. Oh, yeah, thanks, yeah. Well, I do, I, again, I do like Ipcris File, and I like Funeral in Berlin. But I feel by the time Len Bean got around to writing Billion Dollar Brain, he'd obviously seen some Bonds and some Uncles, perhaps, and created a much bigger scenario uh, for his next book and that obviously transferred to screen. Well, speaking of, of 60s Bond, then, if we're keeping it in the 60s, uh, that's that's the Sean era, although we could talk about Casino Royale as well. Uh, what's what's your favourite 60s Connery Bond film? Uh, I think I'd go with Doctor No. It's just because it's the first one. It just seems very well done and adapted well from the book. I'd read the book beforehand, so I, I sort of knew what I was going to get. And I think I was happy with what, what I got. So, yeah. And does Sean Connery remain your favourite Bond? Yes. <laughs> no competition? Well, I, I liked Roger, and I, I met him briefly once. He seemed a really top guy. He was great in The Persuaders and the Saint. <laughs> <laughs> I liked I liked his version of Bond to a degree that he, he had a little humour. That 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 was okay, but I, I overall I prefer Sean, yeah. And have you you know, the sixties I think would you say the sixties is your favorite era for spy stuff? I would say so, yes. Have you continued to kind of track it over the years? Like are you into any of the more modern spy storytelling? Uh yeah, I'll still I still watch spy movies. Uh I, when I was looking through uh, the blogs and thing. I saw you done Firefox, which is uh, a movie Clint Eastwood appeared in. I, I quite like that. I thought that was a, a different take on a spy movie. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. No mention of Men in Black there, though. That's uh... <laughs> uh, no, no mention of Men in Men in Black. <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably the right reasons. Uh, it makes sense to me. Well, uh, now speaking of the book, Guns, Girls, and Gadgets, I will have a link to that in the show notes below, where you can go and get a copy of that as well, everyone. Obviously, we figured out why you wanted to write this book, some of your favourites. But in your research, obviously, you picked X amount of, of films. But there were more spy films in the 60s that, were in, that, that aren't in the book necessarily. So what was yeah, your... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there, yeah. Were, there were a ton, and we, we've only covered some of them ourselves. So what was your process for sort of filtering down the films you wanted to have in the book, and, then, and, and why did you leave some to the side? Yeah. I, I felt from a sales point of view, I had to include James Bond and all the other major franchises, so it's Man From Uncle, Matt Helm, uh, Derek Flint, Bulldog Drummond, uh, and then it, it was just really a personal taste, more or less. Uh, as I was writing it, one or two friends suggested titles to me, Hot Enough for, for June, Hot Enough, sorry, Hot Enough for June, was a film I wasn't aware of, and I watched it, and I thought, yeah, I've got to include that one now. And then somebody said, oh, have you, have you ever seen... Uh, uh, the Sumeru film by Harry Allen Towers. So I watched that and it was shot on location in Hong Kong. Some really beautiful location work. And I thought, well, that's different. So I'll include that as well. Uh, and then somebody suggested a dandy in Aspic, which is uh, a movie where British intelligence know there's a Russian agent somewhere in their department. And they set the top agent on to find him, little knowing that the top agent is, in fact, the Russian spy. And uh, without giving all the plot away, the Russian spy goes to Berlin and tries to get over the Iron Curtain back to Russia. And the Russians don't want him. And he's stuck in the middle. And, yeah, and it plays out with a bit of a twist in the ending as well. So, yeah, I quite enjoyed that. And I thought, that's got to go in. Well, I suppose I have two more questions in terms of the list. Firstly... And I understand that you wanted to include the, the, the heavy hitters. Of course, you would have the Bonds. Of course, you would have the Uncles. It makes total sense. And we've covered some and we'll cover some more in the future. What's one film when you were putting together the list that you hadn't seen that actually now has risen up your ranks of favourite films? One that surprised you, maybe? Uh, I think it would be a dandy in aspect. It's a novel um, scenario. Uh, and and it, it pushed the boundaries, I feel, a little bit. And I would also mention a film called Otley, which is like a comedy spy movie. And again, it pushes the boundaries in that direction. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a car chase. The guy's actually having his driving test, and it ends up a car chase. And it's humorous because the driving examiner fails him because he drives really badly. <laughs> but then he drives so dangerously that he passes him and says, please let me out of the car, you know. And the chase ends on the building site and, and the vehicle drops into some uh, earthworks. So it's, yeah, quite amusing. I could already see the scene in my head. And to be fair, my driving test was uh, not particularly exciting. So I kind of wish it had ended up that way. Yours was like Ronin. <laughs> yes, mine was just like Ronin, racing through the streets of Europe in a Citroen CV2. I've, I've... Yeah, I've seen the car chase in Rome, and it's quite impressive. It's a good car chase. Um, my last, it is very it's good. It's a very yeah. good car chase. My last question then on in terms of the book is, what's one film that now the book is out, you're like, I should have put that in. It's just like it's it's annoying you now. Oh, yeah. the, the one everybody says to me that I've missed is Fathom with Rekha Welsh. Oh, uh, yeah. Ah. Should have had that. It's, 
I sort of consider it a bit of a, of a crime movie, and they're saying, oh, no, it's an espionage film. You've got it all wrong. You should have included it. I would love to uh, cover Fathom on the podcast, but right now it is just so hard to attain. It's like really only available through buying a DVD, so hopefully it pops up on a streaming network somewhere, and when it does, we will cover that one immediately. <laughs> I've never heard of it, but you both seem smitten with it, I have yeah. to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, there, there's, there's some location filming in Spain, Costa Brava, I believe, and it's it's within it's within sight of filming locations for Operation Kid Brother, the Italian Bond movie without Bond, but with Sean Connery's brother Neil. So uh, maybe that that's just a, an interesting fact. Yeah, well, I I. I... I would recommend I we've I've got the copy of the book now and I would definitely recommend people pick it up if you love your 60s spies but I think we need to talk about this week's film Cam can you break the suspense can you tell us what we're talking about Yes we are talking about 1965's The Liquidator starring Rod Taylor Now I hadn't heard of this film until I picked up the book and was reading through it and trying to find a, a film to talk with Mike about um, now we originally had another film planned, but I know Mike, you were you, you're a bit passionate about this one. So maybe before you talk about what you like about it now, just what is your sort of original connection? Did you see it a long time ago? What sort of brought you to the Liquidator? Yes, I've seen it before, but then again, when I was writing the book, I watched every film as research, and I watched it again, and it made a big, quite a big impression. Again, it, it's a mixture of. Um, Action, mystery, a bit, quite a bit of humour. Uh, Rod Taylor's, I think, was quite good at doing these, this light sort of thriller approach. Mm. Um, and I've been looked a bit into the the actual book that John Gardner wrote. Uh, his character Boise Oaks he described him as an anti-James Bond insofar as he was an anti-hero. He's a, he was a bit of a coward. Uh, and and he, he he didn't do brave things at all unless it was absolutely forced on him. And in the film, he has to step up to the mark and become a proper agent. Well, um, yeah, I, I could definitely see why you wanted to include this film. But what about you, Ken? Did you have any connection to this one at all? None whatsoever. I had actually not heard of this one. No, and, and me neither. So what I'll do, I'm going to read out the letterbox.com synopsis for those who haven't seen the film, just to bring you up to speed. The Liquidator. Right between the eyes is where it hits you. Boise Oaks is deadlier than the most dangerous spy. Spy spoof about Boise Oaks, a British secret agent who specialises in liquidating. In actual fact, he contracts out the work and pretends it was himself. This leads to complications. Oh, okay. Well, okay, (laughs) well, fine. (laughs) Strange strange synopsis there. I think I'd rather read the one in Mike's book. I think it's actually a better synopsis. (laughs) Why don't you tell us what those complications are? (laughs) Yeah. It leaves you hanging, I suppose, so I'll take that. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, Cam, I think we should uh, initiate Operation Coronet and uh, give us some info about how we got the liquidator. But let's be fair, the man who wrote the book on the film is also with us, so maybe we should share the stage. Yeah, exactly. So this was based on the book The Liquidator by John Gardner. This was the first in his Boise Oaks series, which was published in 1964. And um, Gardner was a British spy and thriller novelist. And he wrote uh, eight books on Boise Oaks, as well as uh, four short stories. And 
at the time, I think he thought of it as a bit of an you know, antidote to Bond, something a little bit different, but he would go on to actually write several Bond novels starting in 81. He would write License Renewed and go on to write a whole handful of them, as well as um, uh, uh, novelizations of License to Kill and Goldeneye. And I'm just curious, you know, Mike, did you read the um, Gardner novels at all? I, did, I didn't read any of the Boise Oaks novels, but I think I read the first half dozen Bond books he did. Um... License renewed for special services. Icebreaker, I thought was very good. Uh, and there's no no deals, Mister Bond. I, I, I've read all those, and I, I quite enjoyed them. Uh, I, I know at the time in the sixties, he sort of said, "Boys, Oaks is the answer. He's the anti-James Bond." Uh, and he's sort of saying, "Well, I don't really like James Bond," but when he got offered the chance. <laughs> Right, the novels, he suddenly did a big U-turn, I felt. Yeah, a lot of people will change their yeah. mind when that check turns up. Yes, yeah, if you get the, the chance to uh, to do a major work Bond, uh, you're not going to turn it down, I wouldn't. It's how Cam got me to do this podcast. That's right, that's right, the big money. <laughs> <laughs> and he wrote like those Bond books for about 15 years, because he ended off in 1996 yes. with... Um, the book has different titles depending where you live. It's either called Cold or Coldfall. So, um, yeah, that's right. He he beat Skyfall with the using the word yeah. fall in a Bond title. Yeah, it doesn't quite ring nicely if if you do uh, Adele singing at the Coldfall. <laughs> I'm I'm not singing the intro to these Bond films, by the way. That is Cam's gimmick, that's and right. I will never touch it. Uh. Yeah. Um. And so MGM producer John Pennington read the book The Liquidator on a plane and then sought the rights almost immediately after he got home because he just thought, okay, we've got something really cool here. And um, he hired a writer named Peter Yeldman, who was an Australian writer, started in TV, written episodes of Top Secret, Espionage. So he had a little bit of background in spy stuff, but he'd just done a lot of writing just in general. And um, he had actually also uh, written a 1964 spy film called Code 7, Victim 5, which was his first major film credit before that it was all tv and that film starred lex barker i'm not familiar with that um you know mike have you heard of code seven victim five i haven't no it's not a movie i've seen at all yeah I, I'm, I'm aware of peter yelderman that he was australian and then he wrote in the uk and then went back to live in australia mm -hmm. uh, i think he might have done an episode of danger man yeah, like I looked at his filmography, he didn't do a whole heck of a lot after that people I think really remember as held in high regard. The one thing that did pop out was the 1972 adaptation of Call of the Wild starring Charlton Heston, which has a bit of prestige around it. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, then they um, brought in director Jack Cardiff, who was a, mostly known as a cinematographer. He'd done movies like Black Narcissus with Powell and Pressburger, as well as um, Hitchcock's Under Capricorn. He did The African Queen, and he did later on movies like Conan the Destroyer and Rambo 2. So he had a long career as a cinematographer, and he'd gotten started in documentaries. But he did, in 1958, move into directing, and he did a movie called Intent to Kill, which was sort of a thriller. And then in 1960, he did a movie called Sons and Lovers, which was a coming-of-age film set in like a British coal mining town. And it was nominated for quite a few Oscars, including a Best Director, a Best Picture. I coincidentally, without any um, really knowledge of this episode, watched this movie, Sons and Lovers, about maybe three weeks ago. <laughs> no way. Yeah, it was just total fluke. It was when I went to sit down to watch The Liquidator, I was like, oh, 
I actually watched one of this guy's movies like three weeks ago. And uh, how was Sons and Lovers? Eh, <laughs> it was okay. Uh, it uh. It's, it's kind of falls into that sort of working class British drama. You would see a lot of movies set in coal towns and kind of the difference between the country folk and the city folk. And it's not bad. It's it's more dated than some. Uh, it's just not not really up to, you know, when I think of, say, like John Ford's How Green Was My Valley or something like that's a fantastic movie. I don't really look at um, Sons and Lovers on the same line, but 1960, it definitely made an impact. I, I, I've got loads of jokes about the title, but I, I don't really want to use them, so let's just move on. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, Cardiff had also directed a movie called Young Cassidy, starring an actor named Rod Taylor. And mm. so that was a big part of the reason that Taylor came on and did The Liquidator. Am I right, Mike? You're absolutely right, yes. Uh, from what I, I found out that uh, he, he obviously thought Taylor was quite good. He'd used him before and sort of used him again. And to be honest, I think they got the right guy. Yeah, like Taylor was an Australian actor. I don't, like Scott, did you know who Rod Taylor was? I'd never heard the name before. He, in in sort of the early 60s, he did a film called, um, he did The Birds, mm -hmm. where the Alfred Hitchcock movie. And then he did uh, a version of The Time Machine, the H.G. Wells story. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. But he hadn't really had a major film. And, and I don't think The Liquidator was a major film for him either, unfortunately. Uh, and he, he sort of he sort of carried on doing movies, but I don't think he was a major movie actor, to be honest. No, yeah, The Time Machine was the one that really got him across as a leading man. It was a bit of a, yeah, a surprise yeah. hit. The other really notable thing he did was a role that I don't really hear people mention much, but he was the voice of Pongo in 101 Dalmatians. The Disney film. Oh, right. Yes, I believe. Yeah. 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 So that's like one of the big iconic Disney films. Yeah. The big thing I do remember is he turned down the chance to screen test for James Bond in for Dr. No. And every time Kobe Broccoli saw him after that, it reminded him of the fact. And Taylor would say, it's the worst decision I ever made. Oh, my Lord. Can you, you, you're never living that down. You're never living no. that down. I have a quote from Rod Taylor about that. He said, every time a new Bond picture became a smash hit, I tore out my hair. <laughs> I, I have the same problem. <laughs> and you weren't even going to screen test. <laughs> no. <laughs> Apparently the issue was, yeah, like he really didn't see Bond as a viable motion picture franchise. No, he didn't. He no, refused no. a screen test. And he said it felt a little too TV. So he, he's in that club with the guy who got rid of the Beatles and George Lazenby. But I suppose at least George Lazenby did it once. Yeah. I mean, I guess the thing is, though, it's all fun in retrospect to look back on. But at the time, you had a couple of kind of outsiders coming to you with this thing saying, we want to make a spy franchise based on these novels of cult popularity. I don't like necessarily fault an actor being like, I don't know that I want to attach myself to this. I, I won't fault him because he's a he's an artist and he was, you know, he followed his, his vision for what he wanted to do. That's entirely fine. But I'm sure there are many times late at night where he went, I wish I was in oh, yeah. to know. It's one of those kick me <laughs> later things. You know, it's like, I mean, you could talk about 60s Bonds, you know, Sean Connery turned down The Matrix and Lord of the Rings, right? Like, wait, was Sean Connery going to be Neo? Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they wanted him for Morpheus, and uh, they wanted him for Gandalf for Lord of the Rings. For Morpheus? Yeah. 
Gandalf, I guess I could see, but Morpheus seems... I, I don't know. I I want someone younger. I thought, yeah. They were, like, playing around with casting on The Matrix quite a bit because they looked at Will Smith as well for Neo and also um, I think they looked at maybe Val Kilmer for Morpheus as well. I, I, I'm glad we ended up with who we ended up with. Yeah, things worked out just fine. Yes, yeah. Sean Connery yeah. Is, yeah. Uh, was fine. Yeah. yeah. Did things work out for Rod Taylor? Well, that's a question for another day. <laughs> Find out at the end of the episode when we get to the Noculus. Yeah, and we should note also that Rod Taylor's final screen credit was actually in Inglorious Bastards, playing Winston Churchill. So we'll talk about his final work later on down the road. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, the casting of Jill St. John was a bit interesting. And actually, Michael, you wrote about that in your book. Did you just want to talk about Jill St. John? Yeah, uh, I think... The initial name was Dorothy Provine was connected. And I think she's very good in the Uncle film. One of our spies is missing. But as with all these things, different people are are considered. And then the entertainment press pick up on it and publish it. And then the following week, I think Angie Dickinson's name was involved. Before it became Jill St. John. Oh, I thought it was very, you know, fair enough. She She was okay, yeah. Uh, and, of course, there's a Bond connection to Diamonds Are Forever there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I thought she was okay. I thought uh, she she was... I didn't think the part was written that greatly, but she did okay with what there was there. And this is also the period where she's showing up on, like, the Batman TV show, so she was very much a name. Yes, yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah. What was she in Batman? She was, like, one of the villain's, you know, assistants. Oh, assistants? Yeah, that's, they would always have your main villain, so you'd have the Penguin or the Riddler or Joker, and they would always have usually a female accomplice with them, and I, Jill St. John filled that role. I think she was under contract to MGM at the time, so presumably she couldn't get out of it even if she wanted to. Yeah. Like Sandra Dean in A Man Could Get Killed, uh, she didn't want to do with the film, but Universal insisted because it was in a contract, so he was forced to do it, although she was apparently very miserable during during filming. Now, as I said earlier, this is a 1965 film, but things were a little mucky there, and the movie was actually released uh, in 1966. Michael, could you maybe fill us in on why that was? Yeah, there was this really strange situation where the uh, producer, John Pennington, he was the one who bought the rights for the film rights from John Garner. And I think what usually happens when this occurs, the film company then buy the rights from the producer. And I would imagine that happens before production started. However, it didn't happen on this occasion. And although MGM did make an offer, Mr. Pennington turned it down. And when the filming ended, Things got a bit nasty, and he said, I want the master of the film, or I'm going to take legal action. They wouldn't give him the master of the film, and legal action ensured in the UK and the USA. And this went on for about nine months. Eventually, uh, a settlement was reached, and we don't know what the details were, but the liquidator finally got released. Unfortunately, by this time, there were more spy films in the marketplace. And I think the liquidator could have probably done a lot better had it been released nine months previously. Very strange situation indeed. I'd never, I've never known this happened in the film industry at all previously. 
Yeah, and it's like you look at that spy boom coming out of especially um, Goldfinger in 64. It's like you want this movie to open quickly after that. And just that delay yes. probably did it no favors. Yeah. Oh, as you said, uh, by the time it came out, you know, uh, uh, Columbia got Matt L movies, 20th Century Fox had got Derek Flynn. So there was much more competition in the marketplace, I feel, and that's probably why it didn't do as well as they thought it would. Yeah, and you had Harry Palmer out there as well. Yes, yeah. So the movie, I couldn't find a budget for it. I don't know if you're familiar with any budget numbers. No, I've not come across any budget numbers on that one. Um, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I, I, I've, I've been through Variety. I've been through The Hollywood Reporter. And here in the UK, I've been through Kinney Weekly and, and the Daily Cinema and couldn't find any budgets. Where I've found budgets, I've included them in the book. The Bond films, they usually give you a budget and the Matt Elms do. Um, you know. Yeah, in terms of doing these behind the scenes uh, facts for the show, Bond movies are a dream because even when you're looking up like a 1960s movie, they're like, here's the budget, here's the domestic, here's the international, and I'm like, boom. Yes. Whereas a lot of movies like this one, the numbers are kind of lost to the sands of time. The one number I found was a domestic gross of $1.18 million. Uh, it seemed to be linked to a variety article, so I'll take that, I guess. <laughs> That's all I got. Yeah. <laughs> Just just for, for the audience listening at home, is 1.8 million okay? 1.18. Oh. Uh, no. No, it's not great. No. No, I wouldn't. I would think it needs to be doing quite a bit more than that. Uh... Yeah. So um, the uh, top three for this year uh, were number one was The Bible in the beginning. I've seen it. My, my favorite book. I've uh... seen it. It's slow. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Number two was Hawaii, the Julie Andrews, Max von Sydow movie we've referenced a couple times on the show. I feel like I need to watch this movie. It's one of those like three-hour epics that no one really remembers. You just got to be on the watch out for Jim McClane. Yeah, of course. Of course. Thank you, Scott. Nice callback. He could surf in at any moment. That's right. And number three was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which uh, won many Oscars that year. And... Um, as we said, like this movie didn't perform particularly well, but there were kind of plans to make sequels, correct? There was plans for, uh, yeah, one sequel uh, based on the third book in the series called Amber Nine. Uh, uh, John Pennington, uh, obviously, had, he'd had his big falling out with MGM, so they weren't going to finance it. So he went to, to Hollywood and to try and get backing. But as we've just said, most of the major companies have got their own by franchises running by then uh, and unfortunately couldn't get back in so uh, he couldn't get another movie off the ground I, he didn't he didn't confirm that he got rod taylor he was going to use the same scriptwriter, mr peter yeldon the australian guy uh, but unfortunately no it, it, even though it was a, a boom time for 65 movies i just wonder if all the problems he had with mgm had just poisoned everything and other companies thought well we don't want to get involved with this producer yeah and also if there's if there's so much competing spy stuff and you've got kind of the property that's very conflicted and coming off a box office underperformer yeah <laughs> not the most exciting mm, yeah, yeah 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 so it, it, it was designed to be the first of a franchise but unfortunately it didn't go any further yeah and, you know, Rod Taylor would go on to make another spy film called Glass Bottom Boat, 
which we will uh, hopefully tackle on the podcast in the future. And it came out also in 1966. Okay, gents, shut up that bloody band and put away your multicolored tits because it's time to talk about the liquidator. <laughs> I've been saving that one all day. I'm very proud. It was like smoke coming off the pen when you were writing that one down. <laughs> <laughs> it was so good. Smooth, smooth. Well, Mike, you're our guest. You go first. What do you think about the liquidator in 2022? I think it stands up pretty well as a light thriller. A light thriller spy story. I like the situation where Boise Oaks is given all the benefits, the endless uh, account, the high-rise apartment, the E-type Jaguar, the girls. And he's then told, guess what? You're the department's assassin. And he sort of thinks, I haven't got the bottle to do this. So he subs it a private sector assassin played by comedy actor Eric Sykes who was extremely good in his limited role in the film and he meets up with Mr Sykes in various places and hands him an envelope which is basically who he has to bump off and his payment so there's a lady in the department who they think is a double agent and she goes on to the underground and as she stood at the edge of the platform as the train's pulling in Mr Sykes brushes past and looks her off the platform although you don't see anything no untoward no. it's 1960s but it's it's played a bit humorously and it, it works pretty well and of course then you go off to the south of france and do quite a lot of location filming in nice and monte carlo and the roads above monte carlo and you get the bit with the uh oldsmobile where uh mr taylor's on the bonnet hanging on by the windscreen surround. Uh, and all accounts are that he did the stunt himself, and it looks as if he did the stunt himself. Uh, and it does, I have some information where it says as he was doing it, it started to drizzle and rain on it, which made it even more dangerous. So, from that point of view, I've got big respect for Mr. Taylor for doing that. Uh, yeah, I, I think it stands up pretty well as a small, humorous spy story. And he does come across as an anti-James Bond. He's not a big macho man, although, um, as I said previously, he comes to the notice of a, a group of Russian agents in Monte Carlo who want to know why he's there, and they kidnap him. And uh, he has to step, then step up to the mark and be a true agent. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, quite enjoyable. Okay. The only, the, the only negative thing I can put is... Um, oh, save that. The save the name? negative. Save yeah. it. We'll need <laughs> fair that. Enough. We'll, yeah. we'll need that. Yeah, we'll need enough. that. Cam. Okay, fair enough. Cam, what about you? Has it melted your icy heart? Has it, no, my heart is forever icy, so nothing can ever melt it. it mm. <laughs> that That's a foregone conclusion. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> no, um, I thought this one was a really fun just encapsulation of the 60s tone atmosphere and like in terms of plotting i found it somewhat confusing at parts <laughs> i won't lie uh it's one of those like carry you kind of by the seat of your pants you have to figure it out and i'm not 100 percent sure it all works together <laughs> in terms of plotting but what it is more so is just sort of a celebration of a vibe and atmosphere that was going on at the time and so like it's interesting in some ways it is just trying to you know essentially give you a spy adventure which i think it is very colorful has a lot of energy and has all kind of the iconography you would hope for when you watch that kind of movie but it's also kind of putting its foot in sort of the spoof world of spy movies 
And it's always interesting, not just with like this example, when you go back and look at films that were trying to spoof a genre very early into that genre's popularity, how it feels like they don't quite have the perspective to exactly lay out what is so absurd or ridiculous about the genre. Like they have some really funny moments in here. And, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about some of the really amusing moments in the movie, but like, it doesn't feel like it's as focused as a spoof as you might get maybe 10 years later when they tried to make a spy spoof or something. Or by the time you're doing Austin Powers, they know what's the absurdities, what's the tropes, what's all the cliches that we can make fun of. Whereas you see here, it's a little more like scattershot where it's like they find fun little ways to work in jokes, but they don't quite know the genre 100% yet because it's not fully evolved. So I thought just in terms of being that sort of 60s early take on a spoof and being this sort of colorful, fun adventure, I thought it was quite fun to watch. Yeah, I I, I agree with you in the most part. I don't need to go into too much. I think for me, it's, I wrote down the word refreshing, which is for us, we've covered a lot of 60s spy films so far on the show. You know, this, we're around the 80 episode mark at this point. And most of them are quite deadly serious, even if you don't consider Bond to be deadly serious. It's not taking the mickey so much as it's just maybe a bit overblown. This is, it, it brushes on spoof. It has some funny parts. It has that whole Lothario 60s spy thing going on. But I like this whole concept that he doesn't actually want to be a spy. Yes. He uh, he hates the idea of killing people. He finds it a bit icky. He actually stumbles upon becoming a spy because he slips over in some rubbish and actually accidentally shoots some people, which is a hilarious setup. And I actually thought originally I was watching the wrong film because it starts in black and white. And I thought, hang on, this film's in colour. And it's only until I saw Rod Taylor's head pop out of the tank that I was like, oh, okay, right, this is going somewhere. And, and, and then we immediately introduced to Trevor Howard peeing in the streets. Great setup. It's fun stuff. My problem with this film, apart from, I think, what Cam says, where it's not maybe not fish nor fowl, it's not quite figured out exactly how it wants to go, and maybe because the genre hasn't quite evolved at that point, I think also it loses a lot of itself in the second half of the film. When it gets to the Cote de Jour, when it's bumbling around France, some of that, the vistas are gorgeous. And I love seeing the shots of, uh, you know, the Monte Carlo and everything in there and all the hills. Looks great. But the fun stuff in the film for me is at the start when he's avoiding work and, you know. <laughs> you could relate. Yeah, totally. And, it, and he's, he's just, you know, shagging women in his uh, bachelor pad. And that's funny. And, you know, him just trying to avoid stuff and driving around, bombing around, you know, SW3 in London. But then he actually has to become a spy and step up to the mark. And I just feel like the energy goes out of the film at that point. I think, like, I know exactly what you mean because I kind of felt it as well. But the one thing was, like, I think it finds its legs again in the climax where you have him in the plane. I feel like that's where suddenly the spark of inspiration goes off again. And they're like, what if we made planes incre incredibly easy to land? <laughs> yeah. To the point it's like, press two buttons and the whole thing's done. And it's this high stakes, dramatic scene of this actor trying to, you know, talk his way through this landing. And it's like, it's so simple. Like, it could not be easier. I thought that was actually genius. I, I, I genuinely want to know where that technology was in Airplane, the movie. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> They they struggled to land that airplane for two hours, and apparently our man Boise Oaks can do it in ten minutes. Yeah. Did anyone else get vibes of Leslie Nielsen in The Naked Gun with um, Rod Taylor's performance at times here? 
Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because I wrote down airplane a lot of times just because they actually copied a joke. Well, actually, airplane copied a joke from this probably where they he says because when Boise is on the plane and the uh, what turns out to be the Russian spy turns to him and says the uh, first time he goes, no, it happens every time. And that's a, that's actually in airplane, which made me kind of giggle. But yeah, I could definitely see what you mean about the whole naked gun. Yeah, it, he feels like he's sort of bumbling his way through the adventure. Also very Condor man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh oh and you have like <laughs> scenes where like he talked about you know his partner died it's like oh he fell off a ladder on his head like that felt like a leslie nielsen kind of line that he would nail and in some ways like rod taylor's performance feels like a early take on that sort of thing where you'd cast something of a character actor known for kind of being serious and just give them absurd lines and play them really straight like yeah. i think that's where he's having a lot of fun um yeah i i think that is where the magic of the film uh, lay and I, I definitely enjoyed my watch. I don't, that what that criticism wasn't to say I didn't enjoy it. I think, as I said, it was refreshing. I think it it flew by, if you pardon the flying pun. And I think Rod Taylor was great. I think Joel St. John was great, and I think Trevor Howard. So the three leads all brought a lot to the film. Mm. I think maybe the problem falls to the script somewhere, or you know, just to the, how it was shot, the pacing perhaps. But let, before we sort of go into things we didn't like, let's talk about things that we did like. So. Michael, from you, what's something you did like about the film? Uh, Taylor, Rod Taylor's performance, I think. He's, as you've said, sort of a light, light humoured in a dangerous situation. Uh, yeah, yeah, I thought it was like, and I, and I did enjoy the location filming in the south of France. Uh, yeah. I thought, I, I thought they'd, they'd spent money on it, you know. Uh, I did feel they'd done that. You can definitely see, like, with Rod Taylor's performance, like, it, they say it's, like, really hard to play stupid on screen. Like, it's really hard to come across as kind of a dimwit. And I think he does a genius job. I make it look easy, people, but... Um, <laughs> I was lining that up. <laughs> I know, I can see the look on your face. But, um, no, like, I think he does a fantastic job where it's, like, he just always has this, like, blankness in his eyes. That, like, you watch Rod Taylor in, like, The Birds. Like, he's really good in that movie like you he's not someone who carries this mode into everything he does it's like a very specific performance and it's fun to watch because we've covered you know like 80 spy films or something like this you know at this point and i've never really seen a performance like this in one of these movies like it felt different which one of my worries when we started doing some of these 60s spy films being so familiar with bond was that they were all just going to feel like clones of bond movies often done on a cheaper budget or with less creativity and that hasn't been the case they've all felt very unique and weird in their own ways and like everything going on here with rod taylor's performance and the way they position the character is very unique and weird yeah and you look at something like uh derek flint we mentioned the flint films earlier that's another spin on the spy genre, but it's not so much a spoof. It's more just James Bond turned up to eleven and Americanized. Yeah. Whereas this yeah. is this is a spoof. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they did Americanize the character, I believe, of Boise, because I think Rod. They did. Yeah. yeah Rod Taylor um, insisted on an American accent, right? Yeah. Well, uh, in the book, he's British, and, and but Rod Taylor said, "Well, America's the largest market for this sort of film, and I'll play him as American." This movie, we're talking about it kind of being this, both this comedy as well as sort of an entry in the spy genre. What is the tone of the book? I've, I've not actually read any of the uh, Boise Oak books. I've just read these uh, John Garner's, some of his Bond, early Bond books. I have to imagine the comedy's in there because if the character's yeah. set up is that well, he doesn't yeah, want to be yeah, a spy, yeah. and yet he is one yeah. and he's a liquidator, 
then I, I that's built for comedy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I read the plot synopsis of the book and it's like really similar. Like really quite similar. Mm. Yeah. So it's a, a very close adaptation. Yeah, I, I you know, a lot of yeah. as you said, Cam, this book came out in sixty four. The book was the film was shot for sixty five, came out in sixty six. I mean, I don't think they had time to create create a whole new character. I wouldn't be surprised if if they just more or less copied scene for scene out of the book and just added some dialogue in to flesh things out. When you watch the movie, does it surprise you, just going off of the character and the way he's depicted in this movie, that there would be a whole series built around this character? It does surprise me a little because I think, like, how much can you get out of it? Yeah, that's the way I felt, too. Yeah, like, you think, okay, he doesn't want to be a spy. He has to step up to the mark by the end. Okay, that's your one story. What do you do with the next one? Has he then become a spy? Okay, but at that point, it's lost its edge. It's lost its main concept of the guy who doesn't want to be a spy. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I wondered the same thing. Like, it feels like a really fun kind of one-joke character where it's like you have your one movie built around this whole concept of this kind of doofus. And even at the end, you say he steps up, but even then he's like, uh, it looks pretty pathetic in that whole plane landing sequence. So it's not like he even ends <laughs> on like solid footing. Is like, and now you're an agent. It's like, I'm just really fascinated to know how this book series would have continued this character. Well, here's, here's an idea. By the end of the film, uh, the Trevor Howard character of Colonel Mostyn, which I think is a great name, good names in this film, good names, Yeah. Um, still has no idea that uh, Boise never killed anyone. <laughs> <laughs> no. So maybe the joke going forward in the second film, which is the third book, or would have been, um, mm, is that yeah. he has to find more outrageous ways of covering up the fact that he can't kill anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Scott, you get started on reading those books and you can report back to us <laughs> <laughs> on a regular basis. <laughs> uh, I'm your Boise. That's right. <laughs> um, well, Cam, what about you? Something you liked about the film? Uh, uh, there's quite a few things, but let's just talk about some of the supporting cast. I'm going to lump them together because it's like, uh, I loved a lot of them. And I thought that mm. like Trevor Howard as sort of your M figure in this film was so much fun. I thought he was hilarious. A lot of his like just quips back and forth, calling him old son throughout the movie made me laugh. Like it could have been, you know, people could have looked at that character as like, well, there's your kind of riff on M. That's kind of flat, whatever, who cares? Um, whereas like I thought Trevor Howard had a genuinely inspired comic creation here and this is a character I would happily watch as the boss in several movies. I'd like to see him paired up with some other spies around the time. I'd love to see Harry Palmer brushing up against this guy. Yeah. Just to see the comedy sparks. Yes. So, you know, Michael, what did you think of uh, Trevor Howard? Yeah, I thought it was great. You like two totally different characters in Mostyn and Boise Oaks. And when you put them together, just the differences make the humour. And... Yeah, that's that's how I saw that one. Uh, you know, and then he's, he's sort of warning him off, you know, you, you don't have any dealings with my secretary. And, of course, the first thing he goes and does is try and pick her up. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that felt like more a more blown-up uh, version of the um, Bond and Monty Penny relationship, like basically hinging your movie on that. Just, a, just a, yet another Bond connection for this film there. But uh, I actually got vibes of... I'm going back to the Flint series again. But Derek Flint and, and Lee J. Cobb's character, because 
there was not like a hatred there, but there was a disdain for it. And he didn't really like the concept of having to have a liquidator. And so he just sort of kept him at arm's length for most of the film. Yes, and yeah. unlike Lee J. Cobb, he wasn't like high-fiving uh, uh, you know, the liquidator at the end, whereas Lee J. Cobb was the, the biggest fan of Derek Flint by the end of Our Man Flint. Yeah. yeah, he's a total fanboy yeah. by the end. And I should note yeah. also, Trevor Howard was in Jack Cardiff's Sons and Lovers. He played like a drunken, abusive father in that. So a uh, real like pivot for that actor. Trevor Howard was a fantastic, fantastic, versatile actor. But yeah. He's got some other spy credits as well, I believe. Yeah, he does. And the other actor, yeah, I mean, Michael touched on him earlier, but um, Eric Sykes as the other assassin, like the real assassin that is basically having his um, gigs farmed out to him, I thought was amazing. And all the comedic ways that um, this character, Griffin, um, knocked off these um, assets that need to be liquidated, just consistently funny like pushing the guy out the window who has the flower pots um the beakers and like stereotypical uh, chemistry setup that like all in all movies it's always these like very complex series of tubes and beakers in different colors going all over the place i thought all that stuff was really really funny they could have done more with that and i would watch a whole spin-off movie about griffin the amoral assassin so what was the uh the disease he had that uh the liquidator had because of his stomach pain Oh, I can't. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. 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 It's fine. But I, I, and, and to add to what Cam said, I, I loved the, the ways he offed people, but I also loved the way that Boise was slipping the messages over. So they were like riding yes, horses yeah, through Hyde good. Park yeah. and like just yeah. slipping it into his hat. It's, yeah. it's, this is where this film worked, is in this comedy moment. Yeah. So I think this is where like I was sitting there going, oh, this is something new. I like this. And then, yeah. yeah. I had problems later, but I love this stuff. Walking the dogs, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I have a dog. I often uh, slip messages to people, but they just look at me weirdly. <laughs> and also, you know, Jill St. John, we talked about her, but she has just so much energy here. I just wanted um, maybe some critiques, though. How was the British accent? Who had a British accent? Jill St. John? Yeah. Jill St. John. Uh... <laughs> On the scale meter, you know, how does this one measure up? <laughs> I've heard worse. Didn't really notice it that much. <laughs> no, like I, I didn't pay attention to her accent. Now I'm yeah. thinking about mm. it. So maybe it's just it was passable to the fact that I didn't even really pay attention. I actually didn't even know off the top of my head that she was American. Now I think about it, she is. But I didn't, I didn't really suss it whilst I was watching. So I guess she was passable. Wow. You see, that's so interesting. Because to me, I was like, oh, this is a real thin British accent. But <laughs> the fact that you two are actually saying it's pretty good shows that I, you know, I continue to have no ear for accents. Whoa, whoa, whoa! I will, I will defend what me and Mike said. We said we didn't notice. That does not mean it's very good. No, but if you don't notice, it means that it's not offensive. It's not like jumping out is awkward. True, true. We're, we're used to having jokes uh, sort of, you know, put our way, so we're just not easily offended. I think. Sure, sure. Sip up a lip and all that. Yeah, but yeah, just you know, kind of to sum up my positives, like I really thought the whole supporting cast really lent well to the vibe. Like everyone feels like they're all making the same movie which, mm. you know, sometimes isn't the case. Yeah, I, I would agree. Jill St. John is fun, and she kind of gets to play two characters in the film. Yeah, yeah. You know, she, she's like the love interest at the start, and then she's like the mad, evil villain at the end. And I, I have issues with the villain story in this film, but she gets to just camp it up for a scene, which is fun. And David Tomlinson, I should add also, I thought was so much fun as a villain. Quadrant there, who shows up later in the movie. Like... For me, Tomlinson, I grew up seeing him in all these Disney movies, Mary Poppins, The Love Bug, all that sort of stuff. So, like, 
that's all I ever knew him for. And to see him here playing this kind of ruthless, you know, villain was just a mm. ton of fun and felt like a real change of pace for me in terms of seeing him on screen. It's funny you should mention Mary Poppins when we're talking about bad English accents. Uh... <gasps> Hello, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually more convincing than Dick Van Dyke, so well done. Thank you, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think the the cast is great. And it, even the name Quadrant, I've said the names before, but terrific name. Yeah. Terrific name. Uh, the only other one, I can't find him on the list of characters on the main page of IMDb, but the chap who plays the sort of leader that leads um whatever section he's working for the secret service that's like colonel mostin's boss right i can't find a chance wilfred eyed white uh wilfred wilfred eyed white playing the part i believe yeah that would be it yeah uh yeah the chief yeah 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 yeah, yeah, just credited as chief oh i I passed it you're right the chief sorry um i thought he was for the like one scene he was in he he ate the scenery in that that scene I, i remember watching it both times and just laughing my head off and there was also that dude who was like the gunman, just the hired goon who was, I thought, incredibly memorable. The guy with like the revolver that had like, what a face for movies, like where you just see him and you instantly remember him. And he like does next to nothing really in the movie. But I was like, that is a guy who easily could have played. I think it's Daniel Emmelfork as Gregory. Like, I yes, think yes, yes. that's a guy who could have shown up as like a Bond, you know, henchman or something like that and been incredibly memorable as well. Yeah. When, when he's... Um... The other guy saying to him, shoot when uh, boys is trying to escape. They shoot him, but for God's sake, don't hit him. I, I thought that was a reasonably good scene, yeah. Yeah, it was a, that was a really fun scene. And uh, yeah. I suppose in terms of things I liked for me that I had left, we've kind of covered them all. Um, the only other thing I, I suppose I quite liked was Shirley Bassey turning up in the opening credits, another... Another Bond connection yeah. there. I know. I did not think this song had a <laughs> this, this film had a song to it, and uh, it's actually quite catchy. It it's like a big dull finger type yeah. hour ballad. And, yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's in it's that a, style. Yeah, it's a full on Goldfinger rip, and also the opening yeah. credits were done by the same chap who did Casino Royale, I believe, a year or so later. Yes, a couple of years yeah. later, and it does look like the Casino Royale credits. And uh, although I do say that tuxedo that he's wearing looks like a tooth walking around on screen. Yeah, Did anyone yeah. catch that? That was weird. The animated <laughs> credits, and I'm always a fan of animated credits having grown up on the Pink Panther films, but like, yeah, they were a bit of a confusing visual to look at. <laughs> I was always going to ask you to sing this one in because we had like a Bond song. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't remember it well enough, but I thought it was fun. And it's also a better Bond riff song than like Never Say Never Again, you know, a couple decades later. Like that oh. one's rough. Whoa, that Never Say Never Again is a Bond film. It's not a Bond rip. Oh, it's a Bond rip, it's, all right. <laughs> it's an official Bond film, thank you. It's got James Bond in it. It's not official. It's definitely not official. <laughs> it's official in my heart. <laughs> I'm wearing the dungarees right now. Yeah. I was actually uh, surprised to hear Shirley Basie doing it. Like, I genuinely had to wait to see the Like, the voice, of course, sounded, you know, instantly recognizable. But I'm like, no way. No way. This has yeah. to be impersonator. I can't believe they would actually get her onto this movie as well. And yeah. And actually, um, Lalo Schifrin did the music for this film. And I thought the score really worked. And I believe he wasn't initially going to do the movie, was he? No. Um, Burt Bacharach, I believe, was originally lined up. But he was, then he got really busy with Casino Royale. Lots of connections to Casino Royale and Bond this week. That's yeah, fun. yeah. 
Yeah, you can see that there was that race for a comedic take on the spy genre. And so they're going out to... Burt Bacharach has that lightness of touch that would work very well in that world. Yeah. Yeah. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Agents, we have some breaking intel. That's right. Independent podcasting is not cheap. Equipment, hosting, research, these all add up. And we don't have Vesper Lind to bail us out. And also, we don't want to run ads on the show. Leave the shopping to Harry Palmer, we say. And this is a big reason we created the Spy Hearts Patreon. So we're here to ask for your help. Please consider joining the Patreon. You'll not only be gaining access to our exclusive lineup of reviews and film commentaries, but also helping support the show. We're currently saving to upgrade our sound equipment to meet IMF standards and give you an even better listening experience. With a wide range of flexible options and an ever-growing catalogue to dive into, become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards or you can find a link in the show notes below. Now Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, there's a lot of good things in this film and I'm sure we probably missed a couple, but uh, as we like to do on the show, we like to critique a little bit as well. Some things we didn't like. Mike, you said you had one in the beginning. I've been waiting to hear it. What was something uh, you didn't like? Well, the the one we, we have touched upon, uh, I don't think I could land a bomber with any amount of instruction <laughs> convincingly at all. Um, and, of course, the, the other lady, uh, Gabriella Licudi, who's quite a nice-looking lady, but apparently her French accent was not up to it, and she was dubbed throughout by Barbara Jefford, who I believe is another connection back to Bond as she's done the same sort of thing on Bond movies. I think she did um, From Russia With Love and one of the other ones off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, yeah, she was... I mean, I. this is where my problem begins with the film is in the... You know, in, in France, in the Côte d'Azur. And when Corral, her character, turns up, it, always, it just feels a bit strange from that point in. And you could yeah. tell she was... I think she was the only person in the film that's dubbed. And you can really see it on screen, which kind of always bugs me when you when it's not so seamless like it can be in the Bond films. Mm, it, yeah. it does wind me up a little bit. Yeah, like she's I think like works as a character. Like she's very memorable when you finish the movie, but it doesn't feel like they have sort of the comedic insight into that character. And a lot of it turns to this whole him being kidnapped, you know, stuff, which didn't I'm I'm with you, Scott. Like I just found like the back half. It was sort of like the inspiration kind of took a bit of a lull. And I think, mm. like, there's injections like Tomlinson and then also the stuff in the plane at the end. But, like, a lot of kind of the hanging out with the villains when they're kidnapped with her is kind of where I go, like, okay, I feel like the energy kind of lagging. Well, they have this whole, like, setup with, like, a torture chamber. And yet he's strapped in a chair the whole time. Like, suspended. Like a dentist chair. Yeah, yeah like, I mean, we, we've seen plenty of dentist chairs recently, looking back on Hitchcock. But, mm. you know, I, I would like to see him, like, strapped up to the straps on the ceiling or something have some fun with the the torture i know torture isn't fun but you know what i mean yeah sky be sensitive <laughs> yeah i'm sorry i'm sorry well you think like you know we're following a movie like goldfinger right just by a couple of years and you have you know bond strapped to the gold with the laser beam like you're kind of surprised they wouldn't go for something a little creative like get a little bit crazy with him tied to this chair like what could these villains do that could be you know amusing on screen yeah, that could have been something there, like I don't know, chuck a circular saw in or something, just to just to riff off of it. But um, I will say, in Corral's defence, 
there is a moment of comedy where they're escaping the prison or the wherever they are, the villain's lair. And mm. um, she's obviously in the know that this is a... They're trying to help him escape, basically. They're trying to re- remove all the obstacles that he can actually escape because they weren't supposed to catch him in the first place. Funny joke. But you just see this like off-to-the-side looks of disappointment she gives him as he's trying to figure out the situation. Like He's like, oh, <laughs> this is too easy. I wonder where they are. And she's like rolling her eyes like, oh, maybe the keys yeah. are in the ignition of the car. You should go and check it out. <laughs> that got a giggle yeah. out of me. Yeah, and I did like the conceit, though, of like the getaway. And, you know, again, like, I, I don't know that I have, like, a different what I didn't like than you, Scott, where it is kind of just that second half losing its sort of momentum. Like, I don't have a lot else. You know, we've talked about how the casting feels so spot on and just the vibe setup feels so strong. It really is just that energy lack. But, you know, I, I did kind of find the conceit of the escape that the villains are hatching themselves um, pretty funny. And then to have the one villain who isn't in on the plan and is trying to actually stop him, that was a fun idea. But I think yeah, something I maybe can nail down that kind of ties into what you basically said, Scott, which is like I found the plotting at that point got convoluted to a point where I was really struggling with the motivations of everyone involved. Because it's like yeah. you have basically some thieves who have taken the initiative of kidnapping him and then they actually don't want him kidnapped. And it's like, okay, wait, wait, wait. How did we get here? And who has the plot to kill the Duke? And how does that all basically lead from the how this movie even began? I, I found it got a little, you know, tangled. Yeah, I, I don't think I could trace the path between his original captures uh, of Sharik and, and Corral all the way through to Quadrant. I'm not quite sure how that baton got passed several times. I don't really understand it, despite having watched it twice today. So I and I would put that at the fault of the script, not the actors. Uh, and but I had fun moments with them all along the way. I just you your head starts to spin a little bit when you're trying to connect the dots in an hour and forty five minute film. Yeah, did you have any problem with that, Mike? Um, well, I've I've seen it several times, so I I don't really have a problem. But I take your point of view that you get part way in and you do tend to think, why are these people doing this? Um. What is their motivation? But then I feel the filmmakers just probably put an action scene in and you forget about that bit and it it, it quickly gets through to another part. And yeah, it's uh, I think it, it happens in quite a few movies and TV episodes. Uh, if in doubt, put some action in and, and the, the audience will forget the main plot line or the, or the subplot. Well, there's like a moment um, a little further on from the film after the escape when um, basically you've got Quadrant, Chekhov and Sharik in the room at the same time. And Quadrant, uh, one of the villains, the main villain, I suppose, apart from Jill St. John, as it turns out, um, says, oh, you're meeting your replacement. And then Chekhov kills Sharik. But you never see Chekhov or Sharik again. So you wonder why they bothered to do any of that in the first place, apart from to have a have a murder. Yeah, 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 yeah. True enough. Yeah. Um, but so that that was your thing, I guess. That leaves my quibble with the film, and Cam sort of taken mine, and you took one of mine as well. The only other one I had left to talk about is something we have brushed past, but it's not as funny as it could be. And so when I when we were watching this for the for the podcast, I reached out on Twitter to some people, uh, the Spy Network on Twitter, and a couple of people chimed in with their thoughts on the film. And you know, 
uh, Alice said that it was like Get Smart the movie. Yeah. Not the original one. Not the one with The Rock, but you know, the TV show yeah, turned yeah. into a film. So yeah. like a spoof yeah. TV show. But it's not as funny as that. Yeah. And it's also not as funny as another comparison I saw online, which is the Kingsman series, a more recent spy series, which takes a lot of the tropes of the spy series and pokes fun at it, but it also is an action adventure, unlike, say, Austin Powers, which is more just pure jokes all the time. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I, I, yeah. Would, I would say the Kingsman is like a 21st century version of this film. Yeah. It's interesting in that it seems to work mostly early on as more the absurdity of the situation of this character who's just really dumb and been mistaken for this ruthless assassin and how he is not suited to this job at all. And that's to me where all the comic inspiration comes, where it's him hiring the the dude to do the murders and all that sort of stuff. Like, that's funny to me. Like, it's just kind of taking an absurd approach to the genre. Whereas you see more, I think in the latter half, where the plot more takes over and the action takes over, they'll just inject, like, gags, like the diversion buoy, where they just, like, put this, like, cone in the middle of the street that says diversion to send them in the opposite direction. Like, things like that felt more like a naked gun or airplane kind of gag. And I think it's a problem that is not exclusive to this movie or to the spy genre when it comes to spoofs and comedies. It's really, when it comes to any sort of spoof or comedy that's tied to something action-based, at a certain point, the plot takes over and there's that requirement to work in action sequences. And I feel like those two things do not go hand in hand with comedy. And I think when you're talking about the first half and how we, at least for Scott and I, like that's where it really worked. That's the stuff where they don't have to focus on the plot. It's just having these characters and the setup and being funny. It reminds me of like a movie like The Other Guys with Will Ferrell and uh, Mark Wahlberg, which I think is really funny in all the setup. And then you're winding up with like 20 minute car chases that I could not care less about. And I think that's kind of the case here, not to maybe that jarring a degree, but it's like when the action and the plot kicks in, you're kind of losing kind of the spark of the comedy early on. So it feels like they've got to inject these little signpost comedy moments, but they also have to resolve a plot, which goes doesn't really work well with comedy. And you look at, say, the uh, the ending sequence in the in the Vulcan aircraft, and you've got Colonel Mostyn driving Boise towards it, and all of a sudden he's just assumed the the sort of military man spy persona, and he's just shooting at um, a quadrant hanging out of the plane. He's not like fumbling to load the gun or something. You'd almost want a little bit of comedy in there. And this is where something like Austin Powers would do it, where like Austin would accidentally drop the cartridge out of the gun or something, or maybe a Johnny English would maybe be a bit more of an apt uh, apt comparison, maybe a bit less absurd. But this at that point he becomes a a great agent. Now he he becomes a bit more fumbly when he gets in the plane, so at least you get that reprise there. But I don't know, it feels like there's missed opportunities. Also, though, the stuff that I've highlighted that I really liked in the plane at that point the plot's wrapped up. It's just kind of getting him back to the ground. So like, there's no pressure on them to deliver action sequences or plot stuff. The mechanics are all dealt with. So it's kind of like the life comes back at that point. Like the energy really does, you know, zip back in. Yeah. Um... It's a tough balancing act. Like it's very difficult. And you see so many action comedies try it. And I think this one walks the line better than many others I've seen. But it does kind of fall victim to that. Well, we haven't tackled many comedies on the show so far that are mostly straight comedies. I think of maybe something like Central Intelligence, which neither of us were particularly big fans of. I was maybe slightly more new, but that's just because I love The Rock. Um, so this is maybe one of our first closer to comedy films. And I think this works best when it's in the comedy vein. Hmm. 
Yeah, like, you know, Michael, do you prefer it when it's kind of doing more of spy stories or do you prefer more of the comedy aspects? Uh, I don't really have a preference. Uh, it's, it, it seems to work for me in both both formats. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, I would agree. agree. It, it is sort of a... It's taken the, the spy genre and it's made it more family-friendly. Which I think you got, like, with season three, Man From U.N.C.L.E. Uh, he, 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 that's where the jokes and the light thriller comes from, I think. Uh, whether it was the way to go, I don't, I don't know. Um, some other movies I like do this. Uh, if you've seen A Man Could Get Killed with James Garner, that's a very similar thing in uh, Mr. Garner arrives in Portugal and gets mistaken for a spy and finds he has to do certain things because gangsters and villains and agents are chasing him. Uh, and, it, it, yeah, I, I think it may be one of the standard uh, spy story, you know, uh, standard formats where it's played for humour, maybe as much as it's played for drama, if, if more for humour. And I'm just curious, you know, we've talked about kind of the interesting clashing tones of the liquidator, and I think that's actually why the movie's interesting and worth watching. Um, but just within sort of the hallmarks of 60s spy, uh, spy films, which obviously you wrote the book on, what is sort of the legacy of The Liquidator? I think it's just a fun movie, basically, <laughs> and a fun spy movie. So it's, it's obviously not in the class of, as you've said, Goldfinger from Russia with Love. It's nowhere near the class of those movies. But as a humorous spy movie in the 60s, I, I would rate it one of the best. And I'd probably put it in my top 10 spy movies of the 60s. Interesting. And I just want to ask the question. We're going to tackle it relatively soon on the show. Are you a fan of the 67 Casino Royale? I am. I've, I've, I wrote a book on it. I don't know if you're aware. Yeah, yeah. It's called The Making yeah. of Casino Royale. Yeah, it's, uh, it, yeah, I'm fascinated with the way it was put together. Um, Oh, sorry, I can't remember the director's name. Uh, there was a few of them. <laughs> yeah, there was. There was five. And two, two second unit directors. <laughs> I know John Houston was oh. one. Uh. Yeah, um, no, not John Houston. He was the, the guy who he was British, but he lived in Florida. So, according to IMDb, there are three credited directors. We right. have we have Val Guest. It was Val Guest. Yeah, yeah. Val Guest lived in Florida some years ago, quite some years ago, and uh, I somehow managed to get his fax number, so I sent him some faxes and we exchanged a lot, and then he said, I'll, I'm back in London for Christmas, give me a call and we'll talk Casino Royale, so I did, and then after that I wrote the book on Casino Royale, and uh, the way Mr. Sellers was badly behaved, and the way the script kept being rewritten overnight, and new people were added, and Tons of extras were stood about doing nothing but getting paid over time. So it's quite a, quite an interesting movie in itself. But as I'd already written it, I thought I couldn't include it in the latest book. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. It, it, it's a fair thing to mention. You, know, you, you briefly said it there, but Michael, you did also write you know, The Making of Casino Royale. It's actually a book I'm picking up because uh, in a few weeks' time, I'm actually going to watch the film 
at the uh, the Prince Charles Cinema in London by the time this comes out around about the same week, funnily enough, because they're actually screening the film. So that should be an yeah. interesting experience to see on the big screen. Yeah. Uh, I won't be popping any LSD before, but I think it might have helped if I did. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I suppose before we talk about the knock list to sort of wrap us up, I'm going to throw it out to everyone at one at a time for sort of final thoughts, final questions, any notes you haven't brought up yet in the review. So, Michael, you first. Is there anything you we haven't touched on that you'd like to mention about the film? Um number of British locations, but very near. It was made at MGM Boreham Wood Studios, which doesn't exist anymore. It was demolished in 1970. Uh, the the building where he's doing all the training and, and he's doing the judo with the two guys at the back of the building, that's the Edgware Berry Hotel uh, at Elstree. Still standing there, still looks more or less the same. The airfield was RAF Bobbington. That's in Hertfordshire. No buildings left. Uh, there's a housing estate on part of it and a prison on some of it, but the runways still exist and they do have big car boot sales from markets on there. Um, one day I happened to be there and I was driving past and I thought, I'm just going to go in just to drive up and down the runway, you know, uh, because it's also used in an episode of The Avengers called The Hour That Never Was. Uh, where Steve and Mrs. Peel go to an RAF base and they find it totally deserted and all the clocks have stopped at the same time and they try and solve the mystery of why and where everybody is. So, yeah, so there's quite a few local locations, uh, local to where the studio was, that's so quite interesting. So, yeah, yeah, they, they weren't difficult to find. So. No, I think it also stops by Heathrow Airport, which is very local to me as well. It does, it does go, yeah, it does go through, and there's one or two in central London as well. Yeah, there's a couple of places there actually. There's a, um, there's a lot around sort of the Horse Guards Parade and uh, yes, the Mall yeah. and stuff is in there. Very area I'm very familiar with. It was nice to see that in the '60s. A lot of the stuff um, yeah. Cam's quite familiar with from the Harry Palmer films. That's actually just around the corner from where this stuff was shot. It's all very close knit uh, and connected. Yeah. So maybe yeah. on uh, maybe on Cam's tour when he comes over, I'll take him down the Mall Horse Guards Parade and I'll take him to his first ever car boot sale. <laughs> I continue to be jealous about the number of locations that are in your backyard versus mine. <laughs> I mean, I, I live like 15 minutes from Pinewood, so yeah. technically I have, I have a ton of locations near me. I mean, so. I'm, I'm very close to Lionsgate Studios, but, uh, you know, I think honestly, like a lot of stuff that's shot in Vancouver, they just make it look like other places, so they don't actually make it you look would. like Vancouver. Yeah, I you know. Would. It's all very, like, you know, Tron Legacy was shot here. Um, you wouldn't really know it other than the shot on the bridge at the end of the movie. But I guess, Scott, when you come to Vancouver, I can take you to the um, apartment from Look Who's Talking. And, uh, boy, the uh, genetic research facility from The Sixth Day. <laughs> Gee whiz. <laughs> book, book my ticket now. Strap yourself in. <laughs> oh, we're in for an adventure. Well, I, I suppose, Cam, do you have any sort of final thoughts or questions? Yeah, I've got a few little things I'll just mention. I thought the like decor of his apartment was amazing. I love these 60s apartments. You know, the uh, Flint one is incredible. And I thought mm -hmm. this one was amazing. There was like a bronze musical instrument on the wall. I'm just like, I don't even know what that is, but I like it. I got to get one for my apartment. <laughs> and um, I love the uh, sun lamp glasses he had on when he was just like oh, tanning. That's great. That was, that was some yeah. Jack Lord in Doctor No level of sunglasses. It was, it was some great <laughs> stuff. 
And the audio on the streaming version that I rented wasn't spectacular. So I put on the subtitles for some parts, which were a little... The audio was like blown out in sections. So it was actually kind of tough to understand. But there was an amazing subtitle that came up that may be my favorite closed caption of all time. Bossa Nova playing. <laughs> Where was that? I think it was before going to his apartment. Like it was like the establishing of his apartment. Was, it just said uh, Bossa Nova playing. Yeah. And I was like, hell <laughs> yes. Um, to get, you can get a screenshot for that one for us. <laughs> yeah. And I guess just the last thing. Uh, actually, I got two things. I'll say the movie opens uh, after the black and white stuff, which is very, you know, pre-Casino Royale. They beat, you know, the, the Daniel Craig film to it. But like you have the scene of... Um, you know, um, Trevor Howard's character walking down the street and there's all these newspapers with spy headlines. And it feels like within the world of the movie, yes, it's informing the um, the fact that they have all these like leaks in their department they need to clear up. But it's also kind of touching on just the spy craze, the fact that everyone was talking about spies at that point in time. I thought that was a clever touch. And uh, also the twist with Jill St. John as the villain. It's not necessarily the most, you know, head, t uh, you know, twisting twist ever, but like, I thought it was actually one that was fun and I didn't really see it coming. No, I, I'd forgotten about her by the point they got to the airbase. I didn't give her any, any any sort of thought at all. And then when I saw there was one person in the cockpit, I thought, who's left? Yeah. It was either Chekhov or it was going to be her. And she was a lot closer. And then, and then she turned around. I was like, oh, there she goes. Did, did that surprise you, Mike, the first time you saw it? It, it did, yes, yeah. Like yourself, <clears throat> she hadn't really made that big an impression that to, to, to sort of yeah you never you never consider she was the least person you'd consider i feel so it that bit worked reasonably well and it must have been nice for her as an actor to just do something other than be the the sex appeal of a mm, film yeah and, yeah. And, yeah don't don't get me wrong she does that part too very well but to say hey you've got two scenes just go like just chew that scenery and she does yeah yeah yeah. Um, for my yeah. final notes, I've got just just two things to bring up. One's a quick note, and then one is perhaps a revelation. The first note is this might be the most relatable spy I've ever seen in my life, just because he doesn't really want to do anything and just sit around and uh, and have naughty times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll take the jaggy type. I'll drive around London and uh, take people back yeah. to my pad. <laughs> that uh, that works for me. Hey, you're all invited. Once I've got that pad. Um, but here is this, uh, this might blow the lid off this film and perhaps Spy Hard's history. Are you ready for this, Cam? I'm ready. Now, there's a character in this film, an actor that we haven't mentioned, surprisingly, in the whole episode. And that is Derek Nemo. Yeah, we talked about him in the past, right? We have. In a spy film where he's playing a British spy, allegedly. And that film was one of our dinosaurs is missing. Oh. Oh, he was the kidnapped guy. He's Lord Southmere. Oh. He's the bumbling fool who actually is technically a spy. Um, now, the film focuses on the grannies and, and the ninjas and the dinosaurs, of course, but there yeah. is a British spy running throughout. So my theory, my theory, is that the character here of... His nickname is Fly, so he could still be Lord Southmere in real life. He stayed with the British Secret Service. Another 10 years rolled by and he's off flying around the world stealing recipes for wonton soup. 
Wow. I, yeah. Like, I never would have yeah. matched the face. Like, he's not an actor I'm particularly familiar with, so... Um, his, his IMDb doesn't have a photo. It's I know. the weirdest thing. But he's been in a lot of films. I know. It's crazy. Like, he's just someone who... He's one of those character actors that pops up and you never really match him, which in some ways probably impedes your uh, ability to become a star, but also means you'll work forever because you're something of a chameleon. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I just want to see the universe where Boise Oaks takes on some uh, people that steal dinosaurs. Because I, I think that would be fun. I think he would end up on the dinosaur yeah. at some point. Yeah. Pulling a Fred Flintstone? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yabba-dabba-doo. There we go. Uh, <laughs> Well, there you go. That's a, a weird spy connection. I, I'm glad you all enjoyed it. And a lot of people like to keep a, a tab of how many times we reference one of our dinosaurs is missing. So there's another tick in that column for you. Right. Not quite as many as the house on 92nd Street. And there's another tick. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that brings us to a close on the review. But the question remains, is the liquidator making the knock list? Now, can we have a guest? Please explain the rules to Mike before he has his vote. Yes, the knocklist is the need to see official classics of the Spy Hearts podcast. That's our <laughs> tortured acronym. It's brutal. Um, I'll take credit for that, and I'm embarrassed to mention this to a writer. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but ultimately, we, you know, after discussing a movie every week, we debate whether it belongs in sort of the pantheon of the all-time must-see spy movies, the ones that you would give that list to someone who's interested in the genre and say, "Here's the list. You should watch these movies." That's sort of what's on there. So movies like Goldfinger made the list, North by Northwest, Three Days of the Condor. Um, God, Scott, any jump to mind for you? Goldeneye, Hannah, um, something more recent. Born Supremacy. Born Supremacy did. Yeah, so there's a there's a wide range going back to uh, 39 mm. Steps, also made yeah. it quite far back. So we've oh. got like a... Go on. A very notable one, Our Man Flint made the list. Oh, right, yeah. Yes, of course, as well. Um, Flint, Flint was like an outlier. It took a lot of debate to get him on, but I'm glad that we did. I'm glad that we did. So the question goes to you, Mike. You're the guest. You go first. Yeah. Is the liquidator making the list of the best spy movies ever made? For me, yes. Okay. Why? Why is that? Why is that? I think in the the, the light thriller type spy movie, it's one of the best. Okay. Okay, so we've got one yes and two we don't know yet. So this could go either way. <laughs> Cam, I think this hinges on you. So what do you think? <laughs> I can make it hinge on you. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think for me, it's like, it's a, it's a no for me. But it's a movie like I had fun with. And we've talked about these movies where we are, in, you know, we enjoyed talking about them. We did the Born Identity and that didn't make the list. And we did the commentary and pinpointed exactly why it didn't make the list as well, which is up on the Patreon. <laughs> Subtle plug. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's like there's lots of these movies I enjoy. And this is kind of falls into that where we've talked about, you know, like for, for me and Scott, like there was a bit of that lagging energy in the back half and just sort of the lack of the sort of the spark there. So... It's the one I would recommend to people. I think if you are a fan of the genre, it's sort of more like falls in that cult classic kind of area for me, where it's yeah. like, if you're into the Bonds, you've, you know, dug a lot of the hallmarks, check out one that was sort of an interesting curiosity that tried some interesting things, but didn't necessarily have sort of the enduring legacy that maybe some of these others did. So I, I think that's why I'm kind of a, a kind of a warm no. 
A warm no, and, and Cam, as he said, he has set me up now to be the one who is the decider, <laughs> which well, is such. I'm done, a, folks. I, See you later. Good night. <laughs> I just want to point this out. This is such a rare occurrence that I get the defining vote. I am usually the last one to pick. Well, I am always the last one, but I'm the, usually I'm outvoted every time. But do I think the Liquidator makes the list of the best films of all time? It's a no. It's a no. Yeah. <laughs> I. I loved what I saw for some of it. I think it, as I used the word at the beginning, and I'll use it again. It was refreshing. It was fun. If someone says to me, hey, I've seen all your films in the 60s on the knock list. Could you give us any more? This will be one of the first ones I say to him, check out. I will say yeah. Liquidator. I will say maybe uh, In Like Flint is another fun one you can go and check out. Yeah. yeah. Good films, kind of missed the mark, but still interesting things to, to, to discover. Uh, maybe Casino Royale might be another one if we get to that down the road. Yeah. But. Um, there's a lot to dig into. There's a lot of fun to have. I think Rod Taylor is a is a great lead. I think he brings a lot to the role. It's fun to see Jill St. John before she does Diamonds, if you haven't seen anything else for her. And, and Trevor Howard is, is quite the revelation in the film. He's a lot of fun. And of course, it's connected to one of our dinosaurs is missing. So why am I saying yeah. why am I saying no? <laughs> I just I looked at my watch. Right. And that was the problem. Towards the back half, I was like, hmm. I'm I'm struggling to pay attention. When does it wrap? And I I we've covered movies that are like three hours on this podcast. If it keeps me going, I will pay attention and not mind it. I think of where I, where Eagles Dare is a good one. Mm, yeah, it's almost three hours long. I never once check my watch. It's it just keeps you uh, concentrated on the screen. You never want to take your eyes away. This one it lags a little bit, and I think that's why it misses the mark. But it's one of those films, as Cam said, that you know. They're interesting ones. They're ones that we wouldn't say miss. If you said, do you want to, should we watch it? We'd say, yeah, check it out. I think of something like The Man from Uncle film um, from Guy Ritchie. That was a, a fun film. It just wasn't quite what we were looking for for the knock list. Um, mm -hmm. but, but there you go. That's uh, that's one yes. And I think, Mike, that was a very fair vote. I know you, you're passionate about The Liquidator, I can tell. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder if like one of the sad parts about the liquidator is that because it wasn't a box office hit we never got the sequels you know i know they had an option for two yeah. more and it's like what happens if they make liquidator two and three and maybe they're like okay you know the first time we were a little uneasy between the comedy and the spy but we understand exactly what what maybe we could improve upon and suddenly you get like that gold finger-esque liquidator sequel where they're just like we've got it we're flying on all cylinders I would have loved to have lived in a world where that was the case because it would be interesting to compare. You know, the Fl the Flints did not get better. Like the first one, I think, is much better than the second. But maybe the Liquidator would have, with the second one, really just you know grabbed the audience more so than the first. I guess did at the box office. Yeah, for for like you look at the Bonds. I think Doctor No does some things wrong. I think there are small small critiques in Doctor No. And I think by the time Goldfinger rolls around, it's sussed out what its sort of template is. Yeah. And and it doesn't mm. really stray too far from that for another 20-odd years. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that's why it was so successful. But this one, maybe it needed its Goldfinger. Yeah. Maybe. There were, there were quite a number, but there was quite a number of movies which were like the beginning of franchises where it didn't happen. Uh, where the Spies Are with David Niven as Dr. Jason Lowe. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Mm -hmm. It's on our list. Uh, Monica Vid here's Modesty Blaze. Yep, that's also on our list. Actually sat, she'd signed for the second movie before they made the first, but there must have been some clause in it about performance of the first film. So. 
he didn't get a second one. And I forget the guy's name. Uh, the film was called Hammerhead. Are you aware of that one? Yeah. Yeah. That was supposed to be the first. Again, they're all based on novels, and there was going to have plenty of original material to draw from, I think. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah. I, as, I think, as Cam said, it is maybe a bit of a shame, but I'm glad I've watched it. I'm glad I've added it to our list of films we checked out, and it's certainly yeah. not going to be one we would say stay away from. I think if you listen to this episode and you haven't seen the film and you fancy it, check it out. It's available to stream. You can rent it right now. I think it's a fun watch. But, unfortunately... Despite Michael's protestations and his his pleas, his <laughs> cries for the liquidator to make the knock list, it hasn't quite made it. One yes, two no's, and as such, as such, the liquidator is not making the knock list, and the file on the film is closed and marked as classified. But, Michael, I want to thank you for taking the time. I know we've been talking about it for a while to get you on the show. Um, I'm so glad I picked up a copy of your book. I love it. And we will be referencing it in future episodes when we cover the films that you've mentioned in the book. But, you know, just again, just tell the guys at home a little something about the book, what you tried to do with it and, uh, you know, where we can find it. Yeah, well, it, I just tried to make it as detailed as possible. So as well as having, like, uh, casting decisions that didn't get used, pre-production, filming locations, production information. At the end, it's got, like, UK release dates, merchandising, seven-inch vinyl singles, original dates and numbers, and any paperback spin-offs and uh, soundtrack albums. So it, it's quite a, a large reference work. So, yeah. So, Bill, just thank you for having me along. Scott, Cam, thanks for an enjoyable time and talking about uh, spy movies. It's been brilliant. Our pleasure. No, we'll definitely be having you back on the show, so look out for that email. But, you know, I just want to say, you know, the book is Guns, Girls and Gadgets, 60 Spy Films Uncovered. There'll be a link in the show notes below to find the, the book online. You can buy your copy now. And uh, I would really recommend it. For any fan of 60 Spy Films, pick up a copy. So, again, we want to thank Michael Richardson for joining us today, and I would definitely recommend you pick up a copy of the book. But, Cam... I'm glowing after that review, and frankly, I want to hear more. So what are we doing next week? Well, in a coincidence, we are tackling a Jill St. John film again. We did not realize this when we scheduled The Liquidator, but we are diving right back into Bond Town with 1971's Diamonds Are Forever. Me and Cam have quite the history with the city of Las Vegas. Um, we're bringing on a previous guest who has shared in that history with us and has many stories of... Uh, some interesting events that we've taken part of in the city of Las Vegas, uh, including stuff to do with this film. So uh, come back next week to find a little bit more about Diamonds Are Forever. I can't wait to talk about it. Definitely. I mean, this is a crazy Bond film, and so there's plenty to talk about, that's for sure. Absolutely. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Diamonds Are Forever, if you already haven't, and join us next week. Unfortunately, The Liquidator did not make the knock list, but if you want to find the films that did, Hop on over to letterbox.com slash spyhards where you can find all those films and more. And of course, do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, they've got us by the short and curlies, lad. And we've got to do something about it on the galloping double. <laughs>